What a joy it is to be with you this morning. I am excited about uh, worshiping the one true and living God with you. I do want to uh, greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and say a uh, happy Mother's Day uh, to our mothers. Amen. And to those who may not be a, a mother, but as uh, Pastor Bishop said earlier, who, uh, who are mo who's mothering? And for you who may be gathered here today with a heavy heart, uh, perhaps uh, for, for various reasons on Mother's Day, I just want you to know that we, uh, we sit with you in that. And I'm so glad that you may have pushed past that heart, that heaviness to worship with us today. And I believe that the Lord has a word for, for everyone that's here. Uh, so if you could grab your Bibles and stand to your feet. We're going to take a, 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 a quick break from our series in the book of uh, Corinthians. And today we're going to go to John, uh, the gospel according to John. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. We, we pray that today will be just a, a blessed day for you all and for whatever you have planned. Amen. John chapter 2. Verse 1 through 12. What you hold in your hand is not a, a simple self-help book. Uh, this is the very word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is written uh, by man. Um, it is what we need most, amen. So let's, let's eat and let's read and let's, uh, let's take it in. The majestic, wonderful, marvelous word of God reads, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of feast tasted the water, now become wine, and, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Most of us have heard um, of the term bridezilla. And if you had, let me explain what that is. A, a bridezilla is a bride that is about to get married who, uh, in the wedding planning process, uh, carries the attributes of Godzilla, right? She just gets really anxious and is very hard to work with. And when we think about brides who lose control or dominate control in a wedding, 
there could be a number of reasons why this may, may happen or come about. But one possible reason, and maybe one shallow reason, is, is simply that uh, uh, the bride, uh, from the time that she was small, was taught that the, the wedding day was the premier day of her life, and that the day was all about her, and that it had to be absolutely perfect. I'm so thankful that in pastoring Forest Baptist Church that I have never had a bridezilla in officiating a wedding, amen? <laughs> never been even close, but I know many Many have. Even as a pastor, I'll tell you, one of the times that I'm most kind of uptight and intense and I really have to depend on the Lord uh, and lean in on him is, is doing weddings because I, I can kind of feel that pressure and get that look from people like, you, you better not mess up. Better do this the right way. Even doing a ring ceremony, I, I love how uh, when the bride or groom is putting a ring on uh, their husband or, or, or wife-to-be, how their hands are just kind of shaking a little bit, right? It's because the, the wedding day is a big day. It's an important day. And I can only imagine performing a wedding in first century uh, uh, Judaism. Um, I can only imagine the pressure that must have been on uh, uh, the, the priest or, or the person who was officiating the wedding. Uh, because to the Jew, to the, to the Hebrew, uh, the wedding day was a huge day. I would argue it was even more glorified than, than in uh, 21st century America. They threw a party. The way that it normally went is, is first there would be a, a big feast. And after the feast, there would be a, a great ceremony. And after the ceremony, the bride and the groom would be carried away in a canopy, uh, surrounded by lit, uh, lit torches. And they would carry the bride and the groom uh, back to the bride and groom's home, and there they would party, they would drink, they would sing. And some historians say that the wedding day could last a week long, the wedding celebration. They put great emphasis on that day, especially those who were poor. They saw the wedding day in small towns as the, the most significant day in a person's life. And since they didn't have a lot of resources, they kind of poured all of these resources into until that day. As we think about this occasion, the wedding, we want to see uh, the weightiness of that day and, and that Jesus is there. The Bible says in verse number one that on the third day there was a, a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. He says it was on the third day, and according to John's gospel, this was uh, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and already that week a lot had happened. On Monday, religious leaders came to, to spy out a man by the name of John the Baptist who was in the wilderness uh, preaching a, a message of repentance. And then on, on Monday... Jesus is called out by John the Baptist in front of a crowd and is introduced as the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus calls his first disciples and they begin to follow him around as their rabbi. The third day is the third day from Wednesday, and now we find ourselves on Saturday and Jesus is at a party. And I don't want to rush past that point because a lot of us uh, we tend to see Jesus sometimes as a killjoy. We tend to see Jesus as someone maybe who is uptight. We can tend to see Jesus as one who uh, is maybe even political. 
But we need to see Jesus as one who likes to throw a party. Jesus likes to have a good time. Jesus was probably there and was just as cheerful and joy-filled as anyone else. I want you to see this scene. He is surrounded by family, surrounded by friends, so surrounded by his disciples. He's laughing, probably telling stories and, and listening to stories, and he is enjoying his time. Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus gives joy. But we also want to make sure that we see a balanced Jesus. Because the second part of this chapter in verses 13 through verses 22, we see that Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses out the temple because there was negligent worship happening. So yes, Jesus can throw a party, but Jesus at the right time, when it is necessary, can throw a punch. And we want to see this balanced Jesus. But this is the occasion, a, a wedding is going on, a, a party is going on, and, and, and then all of a sudden we see a dilemma. Look at your Bibles in verse 3, where it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. So we see Mary, Jesus' mother, is, is faced with a dilemma. The word gets back to her. Someone observes that, that the wine is running out, and, and Mama Mary figures that they need to do something about it. I'm not sure why it was brought to her, or, or even what would lead her to, to tell it to Jesus. But she says, there's a problem, and I believe that my son can fix it. Now, I wonder what she expected as she went to Jesus and said, Jesus, the wine is gone. I mean, had Jesus done something in his childhood that would make her to think that he was able to turn water into wine? As a, as a child and as he was growing up, was there other miracles that was done? Some would argue and say no, because this is often referred to as the first sign of the first miracle that he has done. But something in Jesus led her to him. And she went to him and said, there's a problem. And I love how this interaction takes place. Uh, Jesus looks at her and he says, uh, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, I don't think Jesus was dishonoring his mother. I don't think that he was seeking to uh, belittle her or mistreat her. I believe that the language that he's using here is simply trying to separate himself from this issue. And he responds to her and he says, my time has not yet come. In other words, it's not time for me to do a miraculous work. Why? And six times in the book of John, Jesus says that the hour has not come. Six times at least we see this verbiage being used. And when Jesus speaks of his hour not yet coming, what he's speaking of in each of those instances is the fact that it was not time for him to be crucified. Jesus did not want to do a miracle or perform a sign that would lead him to, uh, to being crucified before his time. So Jesus tells her, he says, it's not my time. It's not time for me to do this great work. But look at how the interaction goes. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, she pulled rank on him. You know how mothers do. She probably looked at him, <laughs> smiled, 
Servants, come here. <laughs> do whatever he tells you to do. Isn't that a powerful statement? Do whatever Jesus tells you to do? What a statement of confidence. What a statement of faith. What, what a statement of power. If, if only I had taken that advice sometime from my mama growing up. Son, just follow Jesus and do whatever he tells you to do. And even here this morning, I just want to uh, speak to the mothers and say, Mom, there's going to be times where uh, you may not know the answer to tell your children, or they may be in some complex situation. The best answer that you can do is say, Child, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And we want to make sure that there's not some mystical statement, or, or we want to point them to the Word. <laughs> Do whatever the word tells you to do, because you cannot go wrong following Jesus' instructions. She says, son, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Mama Mary is pulling rank. Mama Mary has confidence that Jesus is going to direct them the right way. That is a wise woman. That is wise parenting. But we also see in this text that there's a deeper meaning to Jesus' first miracle, which is the miracle of turning water into wine. When we look at this text, we, we want to understand what John has been doing throughout uh, the book so far. John has been writing uh, to his uh, uh, readers, and, and, and he, uh, according to John chapter 20, verse 31, has a specific goal, and that is that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in chapter 1, John gives the greatest introduction that is ever given. He gives an introduction that's better than the introduction that's given at Vegas when two uh, heavyweight champions are, are about to fight. He, he lets us know that the one he is introducing is like none other. He opens the book and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He introduces Jesus as the eternal existing Logos or Word. But he also introduced him in chapter 1 as the light of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, which points back to Daniel uh, chapter, I believe, 7 and 9, and this coming uh, 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 king who will reign and who will rule. He also introduced him as the true Israel, the true Jacob, the one in which angels will descend, the one who is a covenant-keeping God, the one who is the center point of all history. In fact, history is simply his story. And now he is letting us know through this miracle and through this situation that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is a messianic passage that points us back to the messianic promises of God. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 9, we read these words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, 
and the reproach of his people will he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. Did you hear that? Well-aged wine, wine of abundance, wine of high quality, was a sign that the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, had come. Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, as John is writing, is to let his readers know that the Messiah is here. The king is here. And his rule is set to begin. What a prophecy. What a beautiful picture. Wine to a Jew. Not only pointed to the messianic era or age, it also pointed to the fact that the wine was really a necessity. Wine was used for infirmities when people were sick. Wine in some areas were very, was very important because there was a, a lack of water. Not only was wine a necessity, but wine was a symbol of joy. When we read throughout the scriptures in the, in the, the Hebrew uh, letters, we see that, that wine was often associated with gladness. Psalm chapter 104 verse 15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. Ecclesiastics verse 10 uh, chapter 10, verse 9 says, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens the hearts. So what is this passage saying, and what does this have to do with us? Ultimately, this is what it's saying. The life without Jesus, it will leave you empty and disappointed. It will leave you joyless. Wine was a sign of joy and abundance. And there's someone here today, figuratively speaking, whose wine has run out. There's someone here present today who does not have joy. There's someone here today who has been seeking joy and seeking happiness in all the wrong places and you are depleted and you feel like giving up. Perhaps there is a mother who is overwhelmed and you have given your child as much wisdom as you could. But maybe you don't know Jesus or you haven't been trusting in his word and it's been human wisdom. And today your wine, your joy, your wisdom is depleted. Today I want to call you to look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can turn your sorrow into salvation. Jesus is the one who can turn your ashes into beauty. We must see Jesus as more than a prophet, as more than a rabbi, as more than a good moral teacher, but we must see him as the king of the universe. The one who can save you out of any situation and who can turn your staleless water of sin into the fresh wine of salvation. Jesus is grace-filled. I love in this passage how Jesus deals with Mary. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we, we see one of my favorite verses in the Scripture. The, the Scriptures say that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We see him speaking the truth to Mary, don't we? 
uh, Mama Mary woman, my, <laughs> my time has not yet come. But doesn't he give grace even though it's not on the timetable that he uh, would prefer? He still gives grace and, and does a miracle out of honoring his mother. He speaks the truth, but he has grace. And not only does he have grace towards Mary, he has grace towards the bride and the groom and the, the wedding master. See, in Judaism, in a Hebrew, for you to run out of wine at your wedding was a huge issue. In fact, it would have been a mark for the rest of your life of shame, of carelessness. People sued Jews. Uh, Jews, they sued each other if, uh, if wine ran out. It could become a legal issue. You could be ostracized from your kinfolk and from your friends. But Jesus has grace. He has grace on the bride and on the groom. He, he treats them like they don't deserve. And Mary's heart was filled with compassion as well because she knew what it was like probably to be in shame. She carried a child before being married. Grace is so important. Grace is what our salvation hinges on. Grace is God's un merited favor, his undeserved favor. It's God's kindness towards sinners, where we deserve judgment, where we deserve eternal separation from God. Grace, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, keeps us from his wrath and puts us in right standing with him. Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth. Has anyone experienced the grace of Jesus? Is anyone here as a grace case? Can anyone testify that as you look back over the years, you have received more than you deserve? Is anyone's breath right here a result of God's grace? I know mine's is. Jesus has shown up to my party and saved it quite a few times, amen? I'm so glad that he's not a God of a first chance or a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance or a fifth chance or a sixth chance or a seventh chance. But he is a God of another chance. The Bible says that Jesus gave grace. And then we see an amazing sign. I love this passage. Look at what happens. In verse 7, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, now this is amazing. Jesus just turned water into wine. And there was no magical show, no grand announcement. He didn't get up and say, look, uh, Abba Dabba Kaboo or whatever, right? He didn't pull a, a rabbit out of a hat and say, now you watch this. The Bible just simply says in the middle of a sentence, now when Jesus had turned water into wine. 
How amazing is that? As one pastor theologian says, Jesus can only do that. Jesus can only turn water into wine. He can only make wine out of no grapes, no sun, no rain, no vines, and no soil in no time. Only Jesus can do that. (laughs) But this shouldn't surprise us because in John chapter 1, we read these words. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's what Jesus does. From the very beginning, he is in the business of making great things out of nothing. He is in the business of turning broken things and broken situations and giving in life. He is in the business of renewing. He is in the business of making the crooked straight. He is in the business of giving hope. He is in the business of giving a future. He is in the business of doing exceedingly above and beyond anything we can ask or think. That's just what Jesus do. And he's not a respecter of persons. What he did for the bride and the bridegroom, he'll do it for you. If you would trust him and believe. Jesus was able. I just want to pause and encourage my women in here today that he's able. I I just want to pause and encourage that, that grandmother in here today that he's able. That, that mother, he is able. And some of my seasoned mothers, you know that he is able. He's able to save that wayward child. He's able. He's able to keep you when things around you seem to be falling apart. He's able. He's able to protect you from danger seen and unseen. He's able. This is an invitation for us to experience joy in Christ to see him as king, and to experience him. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that he's good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1 through 2, tells us that this, this refuge that we take in him, Uh, This wine that we taste of him is is a wine that we uh, cannot pay for and a wine that we do not deserve. The psalmist, in pointing to the day of the Messiah, says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do we buy wine and milk without money and without price? Because someone is going to step up and pay for it for you. Why do you spend your money, says, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which do not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God is calling us to to exchange our, our dirty water for this new wine that Jesus is here to offer. And you can't earn this new wine by works, by trying to to please him in your own strength. This new wine only is given to you by faith. As you say, Lord, I don't deserve it and I can't afford it. I need you. Let's continue the rest of the story. 
So the text says, picking up in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the, the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is, this is good. The wedding master comes and he, he tastes this wine and he says this wine is, is, is peculiar. Normally the, the good stuff is, is served first and then the, uh, the bad stuff comes, but you've reversed it on me. This is the, the best wine that I've ever had. And this points us back to Jesus. That Jesus is better than anything we have ever tasted. That Jesus is better than anything that we've ever experienced. And this is not speaking of literal wine, let me say that. This is speaking of a better wine. The scripture tells us, yes, wine could be used to, to make us glad, but it also tells us that we ought to not be drunk with wine. As Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, For that is of debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. This wine that, that Jesus gives is not a wine that comes from being intoxicated off of a fermented grapes. It is a wine that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a wine that comes that we get to experience when we repent of our sins and trust in a God and a Jesus who died on the cross for us. It is a wine that is unique. It is a wine that is a joy that we experience that is stirred up when we're in community with one another, when we take our eyes off of our situation and, and off of our, our doubts and our fears and we put our, our eyes on Jesus. We can experience a joy like never before. A joy that, that shines through in the midst of the darkest dungeons of life. A joy that shines through in the midst of the darkest circumstances of life. A joy that allows you to sing when everybody else says you shouldn't be singing. A joy that allows you to pray with hope when everybody else says that the situation is hopeless. This is what Jesus gives. This is what Jesus has given me. praise that is supernatural, even in the pit. My question to you is, have you tasted this wine? Have you tasted this joy? Have you experienced this Jesus who celebrates and saves our party gone bad. Have you turned to him for the salvation of your soul? What John is doing is he is challenging his listeners, he is challenging them to trade in their old, stale religion for a relationship with Jesus. These six ritualistic uh, kegs 
that they filled the water to the brim with. Some uh, like to allegorize this and say this represents that old Jewish religion uh, that was of the law. And they say that this is symbolic for Jesus doing away with, with this uh, pointless and fruitless religion that the religious leaders of the day had and replacing that with something that was strong and full of life. And some of us in here today, that's where we are. We may be religious, but we don't have a relationship with Jesus. Our religion takes us to church on Sunday or every now and then. Our religion allows us to, to serve God when it's a, an appropriate or easy situation, but it has not transferred into a thriving relationship. Jesus is inviting you to lay aside pointless religion and to take up a relationship. God Almighty, the creator of the universe, wants to know you closely. He wants to show up and he wants to make your latter days more fulfilling than your former days. And I'm not talking about a Mercedes Benz. I'm not talking about Gucci. I'm not talking about Prada. I'm talking about something deep within your soul that is more meaningful than the car you drive or the home you live in, something that will last an eternity, something that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. This joy I have, the song says. Have you experienced the person of Jesus? Verse 11, and we'll close. This was the first of signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He says this was the first of signs. Now, throughout the book of John, John uses this word signs in times in place of the word miracles. See, a, a miracle, uh, when we think of it, it often uh, points our attention to the act that was done. But a sign doesn't point us to the act that was done as much as it does to the person who did it. This miracle points us to Jesus. John says that Jesus did this as a sign in order to affirm that he is who John the Baptist said he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is who John has been writing about up to this point. And he did this for a specific reason. And what is that reason? It is to manifest his glory. What does it mean to manifest his glory? The, the glory of Jesus is his intricate, his internal worth or beauty. It was to show off how beautiful he was, how powerful he was, how able he is. He did this to point back to him, this glory that he had that always existed and that will never run dry. The Bible says, and the disciples believed in him. When God does a sign, it is so that his disciples would come to believe. It is so that people would come to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Jesus didn't turn water into wine to put on a good show. And neither do we gather together as the community of God to have a good show. 
but ultimately to, to learn about this one who is able to do anything that he wants to because he is in complete control and that we would believe in him so that we can go out into a dying world and tell him about a living Savior. Today I want to invite you to know this Jesus if you don't know him. To stop trusting in yourself, in your own wisdom, in your own way. To stop living life for your own advantage and to receive the grace of God. To, to come into this union, this, this party with God. It won't always be a celebration. There will be some times of sorrow, but God will give you an internal power through his Holy Spirit to still have hope through it. Repent, turn, and trust Jesus. Stop living life your own way. And for those who have put their faith, your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you to continue to put your faith and trust in as Satan whispers sweet nothings into your ear, as he tries to get you to derail from the plan of God, as he tries to discourage you with trials and with temptations, I want to encourage you to sit at the table with Jesus and to watch him work. To believe that he can empower you to, to live and to do things that you never could do on your own that he wants you to succeed in this thing called the Christian journey, that he has not turned his back on you, and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the midst of your trial and your tribulation, rather than run away from him, I want to encourage you to run to him and to drink, to drink of his cup. A cup that may sometimes come in a form of suffering, but a, a cup at times that will come in a form of joy. And to embrace both equally just as he did. Don't give up on Jesus. Know that he is here to save the day. And he has already saved the souls of those who would repent and put their faith and trust in him. Receive him with joy. Receive this bountiful new wine that Jesus has for you. I want to close talking to a, a pastor friend of mine this week. I told him what I was preaching, and he had a great prayer by uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, a guy by the name of Scotty Smith. I just want to close by reading this prayer, and I pray that this prayer would, would speak to your heart today, that this, that this news of Jesus would be good news to you. He says, Heavenly Father, I cannot think of a better way to begin and to continue every day than feasting on the gospel. Lay the big breakfast buffet of your steadfast love before me. Give me multiple portions of new mercies. Fulfill promises and living hope. Overfill my cup with living water for you. I need you to fill my soul. Father, there's no nutrient I need more than the fresh manna of your grace. Nothing tastes as sweet as the assurance of your kind welcome, life-giving presence, and endless affection. I've never met a carbohydrate I didn't like, but just send me a, an ample supply of the bread of life, and I will be sat a satisfied man, far better off. I will be a different man. Indeed, Father, I am not just looking to be a satisfied consumer of the gospel. I need your unfailing love for the challenges of the day, this day. Apart from the gospel, I'll whine more than I'll worship. Apart from the gospel, I'll judge more than I'll seek to understand them. 
Apart from the gospel, I'll get my feelings hurt quicker than I'll be careful not to offend others. Apart from the gospel, I'll spend more on myself than I'll, I'll be spent for others and for the advancement of your kingdom. Apart from the gospel, I'll react selfishly to irritants rather than responding graciously. Apart from the gospel, I'll talk more than I'll listen. Apart from the gospel, I'll think about me much more than I'll think about you. Apart from the gospel, I won't risk anything. I'll do just enough to get by. Apart from the banquet of the gospel, I'll be reaching for junk food all day long, literally and figuratively. Father, because of your unfailing love for us in Jesus, I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go this very day. Show me what thinking, feeling, and choosing in line with the truth of the gospel requires of me. And then give me that ample supply. So very amen, I pray, in the name of the beautiful and bountiful name of Jesus. What we need today is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We need this new wine. Let's pray.